From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, another court ruling against Donald Trump. And then Alexei Navalny dies in prison. Reaction from Russia and around the world. Worries in NATO over Donald Trump's statements that seem to welcome a Russian attack. And a memoir from Ed Zwick, movie and TV series maker, including 30-something, which stood out in the late 1980s for not being about cops, robbers, or docs, but growing into adulthood. Everyone was a lawyer or a doctor or a cop. And the family shows were more like science fiction, as best I could tell. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 17, 2024. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Vice President Kamala Harris is reiterating U.S. support for Ukraine as congressional Republicans hold up further U.S. military assistance. We have stood with Ukraine since day one. Harris speaking a short time ago at the Munich Security Conference where she met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. European allies have joined calls for Congress to approve a military aid package that includes some $60 billion for Ukraine. It has faced resistance from House Republicans. Earlier, President Zelensky addressed world leaders meeting in Munich today, repeating pleas for more weapons to help his forces beat back Russia's invasion. Here's Terry Schultz reporting on Zelensky's remarks. Ukraine's president was last at Munich's annual security conference two years ago, just days before Russia launched the war. Now the letter is Zelensky is here making a familiar case to his country's allies that it is in their own interest to make sure his forces win. Unfortunately, keeping Ukraine in the artificial deficits of weapons particularly in deficit of artillery and long-range capabilities allows Putin to adapt to the current intensity of the war. Zelensky says he's thankful for the huge amount of U.S. assistance so far, but with $60 billion in aid for Ukraine still held up on Capitol Hill, he said he'd be telling U.S. senators he meets here in Munich that his troops can win this war, but they need the support. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Munich. Zelensky spoke just hours after his new armed forces chief said his troops are withdrawing from an embattled city in the east. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from northeastern Ukraine. Ukraine's new military chief, Oleksandr Sirsky, ordered the withdrawal of troops from the Ukrainian city of Avdivka early Saturday after weathering months of intense assaults. Russian troops have encircled the city, which used to have 30,000 residents. Only about 1,000 remain there. Ukrainian soldiers tried to establish a position inside a huge plant in Avdivka that makes a coal-based fuel called coke. But Sirsky says Russians were dropping dozens of bombs there every day. In a statement, he said the withdrawal would, quote, preserve the lives and health of servicemen. The capture of Avdivka is Russia's first major achievement on the battlefield since May of last year year. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Sumy, Ukraine. New York Attorney General Letitia James says the judge's decision ordering former President Donald Trump to pay a hefty fine for civil fraud is a victory for all Americans. This decision is a massive victory for every American who believes in that simple but fundamental pillar of our democracy, that the rule of law applies to all of us equally, fairly, and justly. Trump is vowing to appeal the judge's order that he pay some $355 million in penalties for overstating his net worth. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A new day shelter for migrant families is opening in Chelsea. The immigrant social services organization La Collaborativa is opening the site at its headquarters in coordination with the nonprofit United Way. Organizers tell the Boston Globe that the site will help families staying at an overflow shelter in Cambridge. The organizers will provide food and items such as infant supplies and will offer case management services. The state's highest court has sided with criminal justice advocates over a court records dispute. The advocates said in their suit that the state was violating a law allowing people with juvenile offenses to seal their records after three years. The suit was filed on behalf of a man who was indicted on extortion charges when he was 16 and served his probation. He requested to seal his records in 2021, but initially was denied. A new exhibit exploring climate change through art opens today at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Our Time on Earth imagines the climate future through sculpture, fashion, and other mediums. The exhibit's on loan from a museum in London. Jane Winchell is director of the Peabody Essex Museum Art and Nature Center, and she says she hopes the exhibit offers visitors another way of considering climate change. I think uh, many of us can feel pummeled by sort of statistics and charts and what we often don't get as much access to is the messaging that's out there of wow there is so much to be saved this special exhibit runs through june a rye new hampshire homeowner is offering his historic 2000 square foot home to a new owner for free with a catch. The homeowner's planning to redevelop his land, but does not want to demolish the 1826 home. He's offering it for free to anyone who can move it to a new spot. It's 29 degrees in Boston, a chance of snow, little or no accumulation expected. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. Expensive times for Donald Trump. A judge says he must pay $355 million more for committing fraud by inflating the value of property and other assets. Of course, that follows a jury ordering him to pay E. Jean Carroll more than $83 million for defamation. Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Mighty costly few weeks for the former president, isn't it? Suffice it to say, most Americans can't fathom what it would mean to be fined a million dollars, let alone 83 million or 355 plus penalties yet to come. It's possible the total tab in just these two cases could exceed half a billion dollars. Now, hard to say how much of that Trump will actually have to pay. He says he'll appeal, but there's not an obvious path to overturning these judgments. And this is a New York state case, so there won't be any Trump appointed judges on the appeals court. A bottom line, this was a worst-case outcome for Trump in this civil fraud trial, and he still faces up to four criminal trials in the months ahead, beginning on March 25th. Of course, major story uh, this weekend, and uh, really of these times, is the uh, is the death of Alexei Navalny, 
uh, jailed uh, Russian dissident in a prison camp. President Biden spoke yesterday uh, and said that he'd promised Vladimir Putin, quote, devastating consequences if Navalny died in custody. What consequences should he and Russia face? That was three years ago. In the meantime, they faced a hell of a lot of consequences. They've lost and or had wounded over 350,000 Russian soldiers. They've made them in a position where they've been subjected to great sanctions across the board, and we're contemplating what else could be done. Ron, what else can be done? And to be clear, those Russian casualties and sanctions Biden mentioned were the consequence of Putin invading Ukraine. So Biden is shifting the context a bit in that answer. And what about consequences just to respond to Navalny's death? Perhaps more sanctions? Perhaps more international outcry that the U.S. could orchestrate and amplify? And perhaps also a greater pressure on the Republican leadership in Congress? Now, Senate Majority Leader, or excuse me, Minority Leader, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell has called this the biggest issue to come before Congress in some time. But House Speaker Mike Johnson just closed up shop and left town for two weeks. He left behind an aid package for Ukraine that needs a vote in the House after getting a big bipartisan 70 votes in the Senate. If it came to the floor of the House, all sides acknowledge it would pass with votes from both parties. But Johnson fears that if he brings it to the floor, it will spark another rebellion on the far right of his own ranks. That could cost him his job, just like it cost his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, in the same position last year. I feel the need to ask this week, Ron, what explains why so many elected Republicans, the party of Lincoln after all, and other leading conservative voices speak up for Russia and the Putin regime? At the risk of oversimplifying, the most obvious explanation is the one that applies to so many other things Republican politicians have been saying or doing in the last eight years. They're adapting the attitude and speaking in the voice of Donald Trump. They either have come to see the world through his eyes or they fear the consequences to their own careers if they don't adopt that viewpoint or mimic that voice. We saw that Friday when some of Trump's defenders compared his trials on various state and federal charges to Putin's jailing of Alexei Navalny. Some saying it was the ultimate goal of the Biden administration to see Trump die in prison, just like Navalny. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. A spokesperson for Alexei Navalny confirms the death of the Russian opposition leader. He was in a remote penal colony in Russia's Arctic North. And Charles, Charles Maines is in Moscow and joins us. Charles, thank you for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. What do we know about the circumstances of Mr. Duvalny's death? Well, you know, we're still just left with this brief statement from Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service, which said that Navalny had fallen ill and lost consciousness after a walk in a prison yard on Friday and that medics had tried and failed to resuscitate him. But we also know this. So, so this is Navalny from just a day earlier at a court hearing he participated in by video feed from that same prison. You know, and as I think you can hear, he was in good spirits and he looked healthy. So what changed? You know, we're all waiting for more information, for example, an autopsy report, which the authorities are in theory re required to provide, uh, though obviously transparency is a concern. Charles, what about reaction from uh, Mr. Navalny's supporters and his family? Well, as you know, Scott, I mean, Navalny's family and team now acknowledge that Navalny is gone, although they dispute the idea that he was, quote, that he, quote, died in prison. Uh, they argue he was murdered, just as they, like President Biden, blame Vladimir Putin personally for his death. 
Uh, earlier today, Navalny's mother, Ludmila, together with his lawyer, arrived at the Arctic prison where Navalny was being held and were issued an official notification of death. Uh, they were also informed that Navalny's body had been taken away by investigators for an examination at the local morgue, uh, despite demands to hand over his remains to the family. Uh, only now the morgue says it never got a body, so it's not entirely clear where Navalny is right at this moment. Um, in terms of reaction, there were vigils held by Russian immigrant communities and supporters across the world last night. Uh, inside Russia, we saw more modest memorials, uh, not surprising given this is a highly repressive environment and authorities had issued warnings against any gatherings. Uh, yet here in Moscow and other cities, we saw people leave flowers and tributes at monuments to Soviet political repressions, uh, only to see them quickly removed by police, who also detained some 200 mourners. And that's according to a local human rights monitoring group. And what about the response from the Kremlin? Well, the Kremlin spokesman called accusations that Putin was responsible for Navalny's death, quote, rabid and unacceptable. Uh, Russian officials counter Putin had nothing to gain here, uh, even suggesting that Western outrage over Navalny's death was somehow evidence of a conspiracy to stir up trouble uh, ahead of pre presidential elections here in March. Uh, meanwhile, Putin himself has yet to address Navalny's death, despite being out in front of cameras, chumming it up with factory workers all day Friday. But let's remember, you know, Putin never acknowledged Navalny by his name, even when he was alive, uh, part of a tactic to treat Navalny as a non-entity in Russian politics, which of course wasn't the case. Uh, Navalny mattered enormously. And Charles, remind us uh, about what he meant in Russian society. You know, his political skills were obvious from the beginning. He, you know, he emerged the leader of this opposition movement uh, for fair elections back in 2011, giving these powerful speeches, uh, and nearly won a race to become Moscow's mayor a couple of years later. Uh, beyond that, he somehow managed to come up with these inventive ways to participate in Russian politics, uh, despite being blacklisted by the state. You know, so banned from TV, he'd launched his own YouTube channel where millions watched these investigations into Kremlin corruption. You know, banned from the ballot, he, he ran a shadow campaign for the presidency that was far more vibrant than those of the so-called real candidates. You know, and you have to remember, he was not only fearless, but he was funny. You know, he would crack a joke uh, no matter what ugliness was thrown at him, including during a poisoning attack in, in 2020 that nearly killed him, or more recently, these long stints in solitary confinement. And all of this, you know, gave Navalny an air of invincibility. You know, I remember once uh, talking to a supporter of his who compared him to Batman. You know, it seemed as though nothing, not even prison, could break him. And, and that seemed to drive those who put him there crazy. NPR's Charles Maines uh, in Moscow. Charles, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Maybe the plane crash in which Yevgeny Prigozhin died last summer after he led an uprising against Vladimir Putin really was an accident. Maybe Boris Nepsov being shot to death in February 2015, just two days before he was to lead an opposition rally in Moscow, was a random crime. Maybe Sergei Magnitsky's death in prison after it helped uncover tax fraud in the Russian government really was just the kind of heart attack anyone can suffer. And maybe it was a stranger who spiked Alexander Litvinenko's green tea with polonium, which killed him in 2006. At least a dozen opponents of Vladimir Putin and his policies have somehow been shot, poisoned, or fell out of windows to their deaths. Alexei Navalny survived a poisoning in 2020. Agents smeared the powder in his underpants as he flew to Moscow from Siberia, where he'd been doing opposition work against the Putin regime. Doctors in Germany saved his life, but he didn't stay there safely with his family and become a high-priced pundit. 
Alexei Navalny returned to Russia, where he was immediately arrested and charged. This is how it works, he told the court. They put one man in prison to make millions scared. All of this, the National Guard, this defendant's cage, it's a show of weakness, just weakness. You can't lock up millions and hundreds of thousands of people. And I very much hope that people will be more and more aware of this. And when they're aware, a moment will come when all this will crumble. My life probably isn't worth a penny, said Mr. Navalny. And I want to say, there are many good things in Russia now, and the best are these very people who are not afraid, who don't cast their eyes down at the table, and who will never give up our country to a bunch of corrupt officials who have traded our motherland for their own palaces, vineyards, and aqua discos. The courtroom speech of Alexei Navalny. He was 47 years old. He leaves behind his wife, Yulia, a daughter, Daria, and their son, Zakhar. Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Browdy. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about some athletic scholarships for members of the Winthrop University Cornhole Team. It's 29 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow, little or no accumulation expected. Highs today in the mid-30s. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall bgsp.edu. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris is reiterating U.S. support for Ukraine. She spoke today at the Munich Security Conference, where she met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. A military aid package that includes some $60 billion for Ukraine is stalled in Congress. Former President Donald Trump is vowing to appeal a New York judge's decision ordering him to pay more than $350 million for civil fraud. 
The decision is a win for New York Attorney General Letitia James, whose lawsuit alleged Trump misrepresented financial figures to get cheaper loans and other benefits. And Japan's next-generation H-3 rocket successfully lifted off today. The launch puts the country's space program back on track after the failure of an initial flight last year. I'm Joel Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A hospital in southern Gaza is stuck in the middle of the Israel-Hamas war. Israeli troops have taken it over and say it's an operation center for Hamas. Meanwhile, the Palestinian medical staff is still attempting to take care of patients. And outside the hospital, Hamas fighters and Israeli forces are shooting at each other. And Piers Greg Myrie is in Tel Aviv. Greg, thanks for being with us. Sure thing, Scott. And tell us more about the situation at the hospital. Well, Israel says it's arrested about 100 suspected militants over the past couple days at the Nasser Medical Complex. This is one of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza. It's in the southern city of Han Yunus. The health ministry in Gaza says all the power to the hospital was cut and that five patients who depended on oxygen died as a result. Um, Israel says the medical staff and about 200 patients remain there and that it's not trying to shut down the hospital. In fact, it wants to keep it running. Now, Israeli troops reached the hospital a couple days ago. They ordered thousands of civilians uh, on the hospital grounds seeking shelter to leave. They entered the hospital. They said they had intelligence that Hamas was operating there and that Israeli hostages, living or dead, might be there. They say they haven't found any hostages, but they have found medications bearing the names of hostages. So it's hard to get a clear picture, Scott. The communications are extremely poor. We've seen a few videos that have shown some damage and chaotic scenes at the hospital. Of course, uh, this comes at a time where there are efforts to work out some kind of ceasefire arrangement. What are the prospects? Well, it's moving slowly at best. Uh, the talks are focused on an initial ceasefire of around six weeks and another exchange of Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners. There were some talks this week in Egypt, but substantial gaps remain. Hamas wants a lengthy ceasefire and then leading to the end of the war and the Israeli troops leaving Gaza. But Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, keeps calling the Hamas demands delusional. He says his goal is still to destroy Hamas. So a temporary ceasefire is still possible, but we're not anywhere near a deal to actually end the war. If those talks collapse, uh, would Israel go ahead with its ground invasion of Rafah? You know, it's definitely a possibility. Israeli leaders continue to talk about the possibility of an attack in Rafah. This is the last Hamas stronghold there at the very southern end of Gaza on the border with Egypt. More than a million Palestinian civilians are squeezed into a tent city in and around Rafah. And, of course, a major military operation could lead to huge civilian casualties in, in a war where Israel's already facing intense criticism for the deaths of so many 
women and children. And of course, uh, Greg Ruff is right on the border with Egypt, and e Egypt has concerns here too, doesn't it? Yeah, and Egypt has long kept this border closed. It doesn't want Gaza's chaos spilling into its territory. It's also well aware of the painful history of uh, Palestinians being displaced in previous wars and never being allowed to return. But in recent days, Egypt has started constructing, uh, doing construction work several miles back from the border. It appears to be building a wall in case the Palestinians in southern Gaza come pouring across the border. Now, Egypt isn't talking about this, but satellite photos from the company Maxar show bulldozers and earth-moving equipment clearing an awful lot of land uh, in, this, in this area, which is Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. And th this really shows how Egypt and others are very nervous about what could happen in Rafah in the coming days. And here's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Sure thing, Scott. European leaders are meeting today big international security conference in Munich this weekend, and countering Russia seems to be the top at the top of their minds. In a statement tonight, Ukraine's top military commander said he would withdraw troops from Avdivka, a key stronghold for Ukraine, to avoid being encircled by Russian troops. It is Russia's first big gain since May. Meanwhile, additional U.S. aid to Ukraine is hung up in the House of Representatives, and comments by former and possible future President Donald Trump are still reverberating. Trump invited Russia to attack NATO members who, in his view, do not spend enough on their defense. As Terry Schultz reports, it's that last item that has European leaders talking more about moving beyond their military reliance on the U.S. Donald Trump's comments favoring the Kremlin over low-spending NATO allies may have been more of a shock than a surprise, given the former president's frequent criticism of the alliance and some of the countries in it. Kurt Volker, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO under George W. Bush and Trump's envoy for Ukraine, says the remarks are dangerous. NATO's purpose, it is to prevent war. And what Trump is suggesting is encouraging one of our adversaries to create a war and attack a NATO ally. That is uh, completely outrageous and unacceptable. Somebody like Vladimir Putin is delighted to see that there are these kinds of divisions and disagreements and pressures going on with inside the alliance. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg underscored that point several times over the last week in a sharp immediate response to Trump and in meetings with NATO defense ministers. NATO continues to ensure there is no room for miscalculation in Moscow about our readiness to protect all allies. NATO's readiness to protect is what convinced its newest member, Finland, to join in light of Russia's aggression in the neighborhood. I checked out how Trump's Russia comments were playing in Helsinki with Mina Olander from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. She said Finns are feeling great concern. Finland was somewhat late to the party to join NATO, and now you sort of get the feeling like, are we missing the whole party, actually, if Trump is now sort of uh, just wrecking NATO entirely with his kind of understanding of the whole alliance as some sort of a criminal <laughs> racket or something. Olander's referring to what's often called Trump's pay-to-play approach to collective security. The more he perceives NATO members paying, that is, spending on their own militaries, the more willing he would be to expend U.S. resources to protect them. Actually, the countries along NATO's eastern flank, including Finland, are among the biggest investors in their own defense in terms of GDP. Poland, for example, even outspends the U.S. when measured against the size of its economy. 
But allies still couldn't protect themselves without the U.S. at this point, and Mina Olander says they should have thought about that earlier. European countries should have considered this contingency more seriously immediately two years ago and started working harder immediately on replenishing own um, stocks and making sure that we have some sort of capability in Europe on our own. Camille Grand was NATO's top official overseeing defense investment during the Trump presidency. Grand just co-wrote an article about whether Europe could Trump-proof itself. Here are his main recommendations. Keep calm and carry on. Do the job. Um, think through what are the gaps that you might have in your military apparatus. Invest and invest faster in your defense. Doing this is good for in case Trump is re-elected. It would mitigate the consequences of his election, might even convince him that, you know, by the way, you haven't noticed, but yes, the Europeans have been stepping up. Secretary General Stoltenberg is doing his best to make sure Trump does notice. At multiple press conferences this week, he highlighted how many more billions of dollars NATO countries are spending now compared to the last time they were targets of Trump's ire. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Friendly debate, sort of, has occupied residents of Georgia for generations. Do you want cornbread or a biscuit with that? Now Georgia state legislators are taking up the matter. Is it true that cornbread is something special, but wouldn't you agree that the biscuit is superior? Clearly, I don't believe that or I wouldn't have dropped this fine legislation, my friend. A bill in the Georgia General Assembly would make cornbread the official state bread, but it wouldn't address what kind. People put corn in it, jalapenos in it, crackling in it. They do skillet bread. So there's a lot of different variations, but it all comes back to that corn crop. Ah, but the designation wouldn't address the real controversy. Do you add sugar to the recipe? A lot of the old hats don't believe in sugar. Georgia State Representative Casey Carpenter talks cornbread with guest host Don Gagne tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday. You can listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker, y'all, to play your local station by name. In cities and towns around the country and at many income levels, Americans struggle to find suitable housing and that rent is consuming their paychecks. Now cities are realizing their own rules may have made it too hard and expensive to build the housing they need. NPR's Laurel Walmsley takes a look at how local authorities are trying to change that. On a cold but sunny day in southwest Minneapolis, Sarah Moran gives a tour of the one-bedroom apartment she moved into a few months ago in a new 12-unit building. Here's my kitchen, little pantry, uh, my cat, my other cat. The sundial building where Moran lives is brick, three stories, super energy efficient. And until just a few years ago, it couldn't be built at all. For one thing, there's no off-street parking. But it's just the sort of building that many cities want more of, housing that offers options for people at different income levels and different stages in their lives. In Moran's case, she sold her condo in Houston and moved to Minneapolis, seeking a more walkable and bikeable lifestyle. Now she can ride her e-bike out her patio door, and there's a bus stop on the corner. You can actually see it from here. It's so close. There it goes. Hi, bus. In recent years, Minneapolis made several changes to its zoning rules, allowing more density downtown and along transit corridors, and getting rid of parking requirements. And one change made national news. 
Leaders in Minneapolis proposed the idea of eliminating single-family zoning altogether to increase density, create more housing units, and help address racial segregation. Changes like these are known as zoning reform. Some cities are revising their codes to allow more housing where people want to live and make housing affordable. Researchers have been studying what's happened in Minneapolis. Alex Horowitz directs the Housing Policy Initiative at Pew Charitable Trusts, which looked at the city's housing supply from 2017 to 2022. We saw Minneapolis add 12% to its housing stock in just that five-year period, far more than other cities. They also examined what kind of housing was built. Horowitz and his colleagues found the vast majority of new housing was in mid-size apartment buildings with 20 or more units. The zoning reforms made apartments feasible. They made them less expensive to build. And they were saying yes when builders submitted applications to build apartment buildings. So they got a lot of new housing in a short period of time. They also found that for all the focus on duplexes and triplexes in formerly single-family neighborhoods, very few have been built so far. One reason is because they still had to be the same size as a single-family home, making them less feasible to build. And what about affordability? Rents in Minneapolis rose just 1% during this time, while they increased 14% in the rest of the state. Horowitz says there's a relationship between building more housing and the price of rents. Rents have been rising faster than wages in much of the U.S., but in places that are adding more housing so that there's enough for everybody, we see that they're holding down rent growth. So in cities like Minneapolis, Houston, and Tyson's Virginia, we see that rents stabilize, but wages continue to go up. And so that means that people's cost of living is going down. Zoning rules often make it difficult, expensive, or impossible to build much new housing. A 2019 analysis by the New York Times found in many American cities, more than 75% of the residential land is zoned to allow only detached single-family homes. No row houses, no apartments. That excludes a lot of people who can't afford that kind of home. Nolan Gray wrote a book on zoning called Arbitrary Lines, and he's the research director at California YIMBY, a group that advocates for more housing. He's glad to see several cities in the Midwest and South taking on reform efforts like those underway in California before their housing prices skyrocket. Most American cities and most American states have rules on the books that make it really, really hard to build more infill housing. And eventually that's going to be the margin at which you need to start building housing. So if you want a California-style housing crisis, don't do anything. But if you want to avoid the fate of states like California, learn some of the lessons of what we've been doing over the last few years and allow for more of that infill mixed income housing. Though some zoning reform efforts have hit roadblocks, changes to allow denser housing in Montana and Austin, Texas, have been blocked by judges after lawsuits from homeowners. And in Minneapolis, the part of its plan that put an end to single-family zoning is on hold after a judge ordered an environmental review. Across the river in St. Paul, lessons were learned from its neighbor. St. Paul passed its own zoning reforms in the fall, getting rid of single-family zoning and allowing two to five units on many residential lots and the city's code is flexible on the form those units can take, with the hope that more will be built. Laurel Walmsley, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. There's a new kind of student-athlete in the making. Winthrop University in South Carolina announced this week it's awarding two scholarships to a couple of Colorado teenagers to play cornhole for the next school year. Cornhole! 
Yeah, the beanbag tossing game. It's a historic time for the sport and for Dusty Thompson, who coaches the Winthrop University Eagles cornhole team. He joins us now. Coach, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What makes a great cornhole player? Somebody's been around the game a long time, knows the game, knows the mental side of it, because it's not just about putting every bag in the hole. There's a lot of players that make this a lot more difficult to do that. So it can be a mental game in the long run. Some games can go 20 or 30 minutes, and some games can go five minutes. So a 20 or 30-minute game can mentally exhaust you. Coach Thompson, I say this with respect, but there are people who don't understand why cornhole should be considered a sport or even why somebody would get mentally exhausted after half an hour. I, I get it. I completely get it. I hear it all the time. But the same thing goes for when baseball started. I mean, somebody picked up a stick, probably a broomstick. I don't know. Maybe hit a rock and look at what they turned it into. And it's an amazing sport now. Same thing with basketball. I believe it started with a peach basket. It started somewhere. What's, what's wrong with cornhole starting, you know? Why not get it in college? Give these kids a chance to get a college degree that might not have had a chance or give them a little bit of help through college for being such a good player. I think it's great. I mean, it's a great way for these kids to really get some good education. What can you tell us about these two young athletes who have the scholarships? Gavin Hammond and Jackson Rimmick. And when they're a team together, somebody come up with Team Hammock. <laughs> yes, sir. So I've been talking to a lot of kids, but these were my two kids, my main focus that I wanted to go after first. These are the top kids in high school and college at the moment. These, these kids are coachable, well-mannered, well-behaved, handle themselves on and off of the court in a very professional atmosphere the way they do. And, and has Winthrop somehow become the college cornhole capital? Yes, sir. In my, my personal opinion, there might be other schools out there that are doing this, but none of them are D1. I'm not even sure if there are any other schools, but if they are, they, we are the first D1 school to ever offer anything for this. So it makes sense to have Winthrop doing it because we are the home of the world headquarters for the ACL. For, for the uh, ACs at the American Cornhole League? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. So Winthrop is within a walking distance of the campus, is walking distance to the headquarters. So why not have it here in Rock Hill? It just, it just all goes together. I'm going to try and become a more intelligent and sensitive cornhole fan. Yes, sir. So I have to ask. I, I kind of know what to shout when there's a home run, right? Or yes, sir. A, or a touchdown. Yes, sir. What do I say when there's a good, what do we call it, a cornhole toss? So what I'm going to say that you are relating to is if the bag goes straight in the hole, no slide, no nothing. That is considered an airmail. So do I go, hey, hey, an airmail. Yes, sir. Some of the greats do that. Some of them have their own slogan. If uh, there's a guy, a professional player named Adam Hissner, if he hits an airmail and it's a big shot like that, he's got a fist pump he does every single time, and he yells out, boom, boom. It's a little on the crazy side, but that's what he does, and it's, uh, he's stuck with it throughout the, all these years that he's been professional. You know, I'm going to be an Eagles fan. Winthrop yes, Eagles. sir. I appreciate it. Come on, man. We'll take you any day. All right. Dusty Thompson, uh, coach of the uh, Winthrop University Eagles cornhole team. Thanks so much, coach. Yes, sir. You have a good day. Hey, hey this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A group of Newton parents is seeking damages for the 11-day teacher strike in the city that ended earlier this month. Court records show the parents are joining a class action suit brought by the state and the Newton School Committee against the teachers union. It is unclear how much the parents are seeking in damages. A new day shelter for migrant families is opening in Chelsea at the headquarters of La Collaborativa. The Immigrant Social Services Organization is opening the shelter in coordination with the nonprofit United Way. Organizers tell the Boston Globe the site will help families staying at an overflow shelter in Cambridge. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins face the L.A. Kings. It's 29 degrees in Boston, highs in the mid-30s today with a chance of snow, little or no accumulations expected. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston University's Elie Wiesel Center for Jewish Studies, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. And Boston Children's Museum. Feel the power of play with sock skating, fun activities in the polar playground, and over 20 exhibits to explore. bostonchildrensmuseum.org. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to target and destroy cancer-causing proteins with protein degradation. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for joining us this morning here on 90.9 WBUR. It is easy to find people willing to complain about Boston, but our Ideas and Opinions team asked readers and listeners to share their favorite Boston stories. What does it mean to live here and find your place? As part of WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, here are some of the responses. When I decided to move to Boston in 2018 from San Diego, people warned me that New Englanders can be unfriendly. But that hasn't been my experience, especially on public transportation. It's true. The next Orange Line train to Oak Grove is now arriving. I once saw a guy trip while running for an Orange Line train. He landed on the platform just outside the doors, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like frisbees in every direction. My fellow T-riders watched this happen over our phones and books and donuts. Then the three of us nearest him, without a word, decided on our roles. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. He thanked us each with a glance and a nod, and then we went back to what we had been doing. I got off at the next stop. My name is Christina Ganim. 
My name is Alicia Abbott. My family and I lived in New York City for nearly two decades before we came to Boston in 2009. We had only planned to stay for my husband's one-year fellowship, but at the end of that year, we didn't want to go back. For a long while, I still considered myself a displaced New Yorker. But at some point, Boston did feel like home. At Fresh Pond Reservoir in Cambridge, we met Park Ranger Jean. Before she retired five years ago, you might have crossed paths with her too. She might have even written you a ticket. Driving around in her ranger cart, she made sure all the dogs and their owners followed the rules. My son Finn isn't good at following the rules. He was diagnosed with autism before he was two. And at 12 years old, few boys moved as he moved, rocking from front foot to back. Few boys would suddenly scream to show excitement. Whenever Ranger Jean saw Finn running toward her golf cart, she didn't flinch. She smiled. And she often invited Finn to ride along with her, which he loved. In this small act, she seemed to say, I see you in all your difference. You and your family belong here at Fresh Pond as much as the birders and the bikers, the runners and the walkers, the picnickers and the dog people. This park is your park, too. My name is Ethan Gilsdorf. I grew up in Seacoast, New Hampshire. My parents got divorced when I was six. As a little kid, we often visited Boston for the day, the Aquarium, Museum of Science, or Fenway Park. The summer I was 12, my mother moved to Cambridge so she could attend grad school at Harvard. In October, an aneurysm ruptured in her brain. I spent the better part of a year visiting her at Mass General. She survived, but barely. For years after, the city felt cursed, haunted, a do-not-enter zone. As an adult, I lived in Western Mass, Louisiana, Vermont, and France. But I finally re-entered the emotionally radioactive mom zone when I was 38, the exact age my mom was when she moved to Boston. Newly single, I found a cheap one-bedroom in Somerville. I wanted a fresh start, just like my mother had. My name is Kat Rutkin. I drive a little pink hatchback. It's a Chevy Spark, and it's pretty recognizable, so I try not to be too much of a jerk when I'm out on the road. I grew up in New York, and I got my license when I was 16, but I didn't really use it for 10 years because I lived in Manhattan. I always thought New York was going to be the worst driving I'd ever experienced, but it was not. Last week, I almost got run off of a city street while I was driving my kids to school. When you're driving in Boston, nobody gives away their next move. I moved to Boston in 2011 from Brooklyn. Then in the summer of 2021, I was driving to a doctor's appointment on Starro Drive. I knew I was going to be late. I dodged through traffic with no blinker and I didn't let anyone merge. I'd always been a steady and cautious driver. It took me 10 years, but now I'm just as unpredictable as anybody else. During the pandemic, my partner Jimmy and I got into the routine of ordering takeout from a Noah Poke shop in Somerville every weekend. We fell in love with the freshness and simplicity of the food. Over time, the staff would recognize our eyes and voices from beneath our masks. 
One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. If I came for a pickup without Jimmy, the staff would ask, where's Jimmy? Tell him to come by next week. Our stops at Manoa came to feel like visits to a relative's house. Fast forward three years and Jimmy and I still order from our Manoa family every weekend. My name is Thuy Phan. My name is Dart Adams. I grew up at 47 Mass Ave on the border of South End and Lower Roxbury. I live down the street from the South End Lower Roxbury chapter of the NAACP. The elders in my neighborhood told me stories about how Sammy Davis Jr., Quincy Jones, Martin Luther King Jr., and Credit Scott King all lived in the neighborhood. One of my neighbors, Mel King, ran for mayor against Ray Flynn in 1983. I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston, space funk, reggae, calypso, soca, salsa, merengue, electro, freestyle, Latin hip-hop, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. My neighbors were mostly black and Latino. We had a sizable LGBTQ community that lived among us too. We were all neighbors and everyone looked out for each other. I love history and telling stories that don't always get told because that's what I learned from my community growing up in Boston. That was Christina Ganim, Alicia Abbott, Ethan Gilsdorf, Kat Rutkin, Twee Fan, and Dart Adams. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. For more love letters to the city, check out WBUR's Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Edswick pledges to drop a few names in his new memoir. Denzel, Matt, Brad, Julia, Leo, Bruce, Demi, Tom, Cruz, and Stoppard, Daniel, Craig, and more. But not to depress sales. Edswick says mostly nice things about most of the people with whom he's worked, making celebrated films, Glory, Legends of the Fall, The Last Samurai, and Blood Diamond, producing the Oscar-winning Shakespeare in Love, and creating the signature television series 30-something, My So-Called Life, and more. Edswick's memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions. He joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us. Very happy to be here. You promised a dish, so let me get this out of the way. Could you tell us your Paul Newman story? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's such a good one. because And no one has ever asked. I, I, I was only 27, and I had been asked to help Joanne Woodward direct an episode of television. Yeah. And she was as lovely as you can ever imagine. But one day we were at their house uh, working and Paul was in the next room. He was watching race car on television. Yeah. And at one point uh, when Joanne had left the room, he turned to me and said, kid, you want a beer? Wow, that is, that is so moving. Isn't that yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, that's, really, yeah. that's the kind of celebrity story that I tell. <laughs> pretty, pretty damn good, huh? What, what do you think made the TV shows you created, and I'm thinking, of course, like uh, about 30-something different at the time, even now, really. Well, I think if you remember that moment, everyone was a lawyer or a doctor or a cop, and the family shows were more like um, science fiction, as best I could tell, where everyone was just happy and lovely to each other all the time. 
And our supposition was if we, we could lower the heroic or the epic stakes so as to find what was epic in the personal. Mm-hmm. And then the closer we looked, the more we found. And I think people actually for the first time could relate to these characters in a way that was very, very intimate. One of the things that struck me about this memoir, it, you could do a memoir of successes. You're very open about the role that failure, flops, even humiliation yeah. plays. Yeah. I, I. What I learned is that there's very little to be gained in success having to do with being an artist. It's essentially mystifying. But only in you know abject and humiliating failure do you actually apply a certain scrutiny to what your process is and what has happened. And that's where growth comes from. You also learn that it's not a question as an artist if you're going to get hit, but when and what happens when you do. Yeah. Let me get you to tell a filmmaking story. Of course, you made Glory about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, one of the earliest black regiments in the Union Army. There's a scene which the character played by Denzel Washington is whipped. Now, it was a movie. The whip was made of chamois cloth. But you did something. First thing you have to understand is there's never been a moment, a film that I've shot with Denzel Washington that couldn't have gone right in the movie. And we had done a take, and it was great. But I just had this intuition that there was more. And I did something that could be considered a manipulation. I um, went up to John Finn, who was playing the guy who was whipping him. And I said, listen, John, this time, just don't stop till you hear cut. And I saw something happening on Denzel's face, which was that his whole action was to not give in to this humiliation as a man of his nature would not have. Mm -hmm. And yet there I was having taken that control away from him. And then in one of those miracles of movie gods, you know, it happened to catch that tear as the light hit it and rolled down his face. But the thing that's most, to me, most thrilling is that Denzel knew what was happening, I'm sure, and yet was so deep into the action itself. And this is the mark of a a genius actor, Mm. that you could maintain both of those realities at once, to understand that you were so concentrating and so present, and yet at the same time, aware that this was happening on film with a camera and a lens, and that we were getting what he wanted. Mm. Look, I I love Julia Roberts in every film I've ever seen. But boy, you got a story. It's I mean, it's the one story, and it's, well, let me get you to reconstruct it. It was someone, I think, getting herself into a situation which maybe she realized at a certain point she didn't want to be in. She was supposed to do Shakespeare. She was supposed to play the lead in Shakespeare in Love. She was 24. Uh, We went to England together. Julia had been very disappointed early on because she had decided that the person to play Romeo should be Daniel Mm Day-Lewis. Julia sent him a dozen roses, said, be my Romeo. And it became very clear at a certain point that he was not going to be her Romeo. And I think she was deeply disappointed by that. But you but you were all set up to do the film. Oh, I we mean, were, we, hair, oh, makeup, Oh, no, life, we had built, we, had, we were building the, the Rose Theater yeah. at Pinewood Studios. And we met one extraordinary English actor after another, yeah. and she just didn't feel it was right with any of them. And
And then one day she was gone. And I had never imagined anybody doing something like that and called the studio and said, well, of course, we're going to recast and find someone else. But they didn't. Yeah. And I was destroyed. How many years did it take to get the movie done? About six more years of an odyssey through Hollywood to try to get someone to, you know, step up. Yeah. So many well-known actors in your films. But I, I want to ask you about one who's appeared in a lot of your films. The name may not be familiar in every household. Ray Godshall. <laughs> Ray Godshall was my father-in-law. I had had a very complex and difficult relationship with my father. And when Liberty and I got married, I met this man who just opened himself to me in this most extraordinary way. He was a, a kind of uptight character. He was a gentleman farmer, but also a car dealer in Pennsylvania, but had wanted to be an artist. And here came this inappropriate Hollywood Jewish kid into that life of kind of wasp appropriateness. And yet he was so tickled by me and became for me that man that I needed to have in my life. Mm. But it was more than that because as I began to do movies, it's very hard to find an older man who has not been beaten down and destroyed by the disappointments of being an actor in Hollywood. And here was a man who I then asked on a certain day, would he just play a small part and have a few lines? And he did, and it was great. And it became this tradition where I would go on location and he would come and we would hang together. And he was a kind of charm. There is so much in this place we call out there. Out there? These days, yeah. Yeah. So much out there. What makes something last, a movie or a series? Oh, boy. Um, there's an Emerson essay on self-reliance, which says that that thing that is most personal to you, that private thought, is the thing when you express it, so many others recognize as their own. And I think that's what personal filmmaking means. It doesn't mean telling your own story. Mm -hmm. Those movies, I think, that, that, that last are the ones that have something in them that have gone beyond the predictable. Ed Zwick, his memoir, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions. Thank you so much for being with us. That was really fun. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. Thanks for starting your Saturday with 90.9 WBUR and for listening throughout the week. We bring you the latest news at the start of the hour. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me comes your way this morning at 10. It's 29 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Supply Bulk Foods, a local plastic-free dry bulk food store offering spices, grains, nuts, and much more. Learn more at supplybulkfoods.com.
And Arts Thursdays at Harvard, back with free public art events open to all every Thursday night. Harvard.edu slash Arts Thursdays. I'm Tom Papa, filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Adam Burke reminded us of the things that bring us together. One thing that we as a society can all agree upon is that we all hate mimes. We'll be speaking up nice and loud as we discuss the big stories of the week and talk to the legendary rock band Sleater Kenny on this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, we'll ask an advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu about Israel's imminent plans in Gaza. Also, the latest ruling against Donald Trump. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been going on for two years. Yaroslav Trofimov of the Wall Street Journal, who is from Ukraine, says... I don't think there's a single person in Ukraine whose life has been affected, either because someone in their family was killed or injured or lost their home or is fighting on the front lines. There is a generational trauma that has been inflicted on the Ukrainian people. And later, the series follows two friends through one day year after year. First, our newscast at Saturday, February 17, 2024. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Vice President Kamala Harris is praising Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. You have been an extraordinarily courageous leader and have shown your commitment to the Ukrainian people and to democratic principles, including the most important, one of the most important, which is the importance of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Harris speaking at a joint press conference with Zelensky at the Munich Security Conference. President Zelensky, meanwhile, is warning that what he called an artificial deficit of weapons for his country risks giving Russia breathing room in the war. We can get our land back and Putin can lose. But keeping Ukraine in the artificial deficits of artillery and long-range capabilities allows Putin to adapt to the current intensity of the war. Ukraine is facing shortages of ammunition as U.S. military aid has been delayed for months in Congress. That long-stalled military aid package includes some $60 billion for Ukraine. Funeral services will be held later today in coastal Georgia for Sergeant Brianna Moffat, one of the three U.S. Army reservists killed by a drone strike last month in Jordan. Her remains were flown earlier this week to Savannah, where Moffat is being celebrated as a hometown hero. As Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. Hundreds paid their respects in downtown Savannah this week as a police motorcade escorted Moffat's hearse from the airport to a funeral home. Among those saluting was Sergeant Amy Noble, who was stationed at nearby Hunter Army Airfield. Noble reflected on Moffat's sacrifice. It means everything to me. It touched so close to home because we might be going soon. You know, we might have to go over there. We might have to serve. And you don't want to think that you're not coming back. An Iran-backed militia claimed credit for last month's drone attack that killed Moffat and two other U.S. troops. 
For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah, Georgia. To Texas now, where State Attorney General Ken Paxton is scheduled to go to trial for felony fraud this spring. Houston Public Media's Lucio Vasquez reports that a judge has rejected his attempts to have the cases thrown out of court. Paxton is facing felony securities fraud charges for allegedly misleading investors in a technology firm before he became Texas's attorney general. During the hearing in Houston, Paxton's legal team argued that his right to a speedy trial had been violated because of long delays in the case, which has lingered for nearly nine years now. That request was ultimately denied, meaning Paxton will soon face a jury. After the hearing, Paxton's attorney, Dan Cogdale, said Paxton still feels confident. I mean, this thing has been pending for eight years. They want to dance? Put on your shoes. It's time to go. Let's dance. Paxton's trial is set to begin on April 15th. For NPR News, I'm Lucio Vasquez. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A group of Newton parents is seeking damages for the 11-day teacher strike in the city that ended earlier this month. Court records show the parents are joining a class action suit brought by the state and Newton School Committee against the teachers' union. It's unclear how much the parents are seeking in damages. 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds in Swampscott could soon be eligible to vote. Voters at town meeting next month will decide whether to approve a home rule petition to lower the voting age for town elections. That petition would then go to the state legislature and the governor. Communities including Boston, Brookline, Cambridge, and Concord have sent similar bills to the state house. None have become law. Two New Englanders will compete in the Iron Dog snowmobile race in Alaska. It starts today, and it is considered the longest and most difficult snowmobiling race in the world. J.P. Bernier of Hancock, New Hampshire, and Kim Bergeron of Dublin, New Hampshire, will be the first all-New Hampshire team to compete. Bergeron says the team is provided fuel at checkpoints, but otherwise they need to fend for themselves for most of the race. There is no trail markers telling you go this way, go that way. So we are navigating on our own village to village. There's a huge mental factor along with the physical factor. The team will have to cross more than 2,000 miles of remote Alaskan backcountry in six days or fewer to stay in the race. The second annual Foundry Festival kicks off today. The mostly free week-long event in Cambridge features programming centered around art, design, and social change. Exhibits today include crafting, Lego robotics, circus performances, and a comedy writing workshop. You can learn more and register for events on the Foundry's website. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins take on the L.A. Kings. Tonight, it's the NBA All-Star Game. The Celtics, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are taking part. It's 29 degrees in Boston with highs in the mid-30s, a chance of snow, little or no accumulation. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. President Biden says he's had recent extensive conversations with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's urging Israel to hold off on plans to send troops to Gaza's most crowded area. 
First reached a deal with Hamas for temporary ceasefire to get hostages out. In the meantime, uh, I don't anticipate, I'm hoping that, uh, you, that the uh, Israelis will not make any massive land invasion in the meantime. Um, so it's my expectation that's not going to happen. President speaking at the White House yesterday, uh, Ophir Falk is a foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. He joins us now. Mr. Falk, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Is President Biden correct in what he anticipates? There's not going to be a major offensive in Rafa until there's a, a pause in the fighting and the release of hostages? Well, the, pre uh, the prime minister has made it clear, uh, along with the war cabinet, what our war objectives are. Uh, the entire the, and the state of Israel, the entire state of Israel, the, the government and the war cabinet are fully united behind these goals. It's to destroy Hamas, to free our hostages, and to make sure that uh, Gaza doesn't pose a threat to Israel ever again. Now, uh, we have been able to free 112 hostages uh, so far, including two hostages last week in a heroic uh, special forces rescue operation, there are still 130 hostages being held by uh, by Hamas, the genocidal terrorist organization, and uh, we will get them out. We will get out. We'll get these hostages out. So, well, but is the president correct in his expectation? Can, can you say there's 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 not going to be a major offensive in Rafa until there's a deal for a pause in the fighting and the release of hostages? Well, I can't, I can't get into specifics uh, about, about our operational uh, plans. Um, what I can't, what I can tell you that uh, we are. Well, but has has the government of Israel hostages. has the government of Israel said, given their assurances to President Biden? Well, we have assured the president that we are doing everything we can to get the the kids the hostages out. We've done that by, uh, with his help, by the way, with the president's help. We're very, uh, we're very appreciative of his help of help of helping us get out uh, over a hundred hostages by means of uh, negotiations. And we already did a, a, a previous round in November, where we had a pause and we got out um, over 50 hostages. In total, we've got over 100. We've gotten 112 hostages out. Uh, the president helped us out with this, and we appreciate that. And uh, right now, the, the Hamas demands are delusional. Uh, they're currently delusional. The president said it's way, way over the top. And uh, once they get down to earth, we can uh, we can make a deal. Um, well, you you were in Cairo this week, as I understand it, for talks to to try and uh, reach another hostage deal. What, let me ask you, what's Israel prepared to do in exchange for Hamas releasing hostages? Well, clearly, I can't get into details, but as Israel has done in the past, we will do in the, uh, right now as well, and in the future, we're willing. Uh, to be uh, reasonable, uh, we and I think anybody who uh, has humanitarian uh, uh, issues and, and civilian uh, civilian issues at heart would demand the immediate and unconditional uh, release of the hostages. And on October seventh, uh, Scott, I remember that you wrote a nice article, a very a very moving article actually on 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 nine eleven about nine eleven. Uh, about the atrocities of of 9/11. Well, October 7th was were, was like 2911s on Israel. Uh, Hamas terrorists stormed Israel, invaded Israel, murdered 1,200 people, slaughtered men, women, children, raped women, beheaded them, burnt babies alive, 
and took 250 people hostage. That's what we're up against. We're going to destroy Hamas and we're going to free our hostages. Now, we appreciate the support of the American people and the American president throughout this entire war. We are fully in line. We're fully in line on the need to destroy Hamas. And uh, obviously, nobody wants to free the hostages uh, more than Israel and more than the prime minister. I have to ask, Mr. Falk, though, with, with so many civilian deaths in Gaza, is Israel's military campaign to, to get rid of Hamas, is it actually having the effect of, of generating more support for Hamas in Gaza and for that matter around the world? Well, any civilian casualty is a tragedy for sure. Uh, Israel seeks uh, to minimize the civilian casualties. Well, Hamas uh, seeks to maximize them. We, we seek to minimize them for, for two main reasons. That's been our strategy, and it always has been our strategy, because one, it's the right thing to do. We're the only Jewish country on earth, and that that is our policy, to minimize uh, civilian casualties. And the other reason is because it's effective. The Hamas, on the other hand, hides behind their, their civilians and behind their hostages, behind Israeli hostages, and they seek to maximize the civilian casualties. That's part of their strategy. It's a propaganda tool that they use, and we can't let that to be effective. Now, uh, Colonel John Spencer, the head of urban warfare at West Point, uh, an, an international expert on this on this issue of urban warfare, maybe perhaps the most uh, the most learned, the scholar on, on on this issue of urban warfare, he says that Israel sets the gold standard in terms of uh, preserving uh, civilian lives. Uh, we've been doing what we've what the IDF has been doing in Gaza in this war oh. is unprecedented in, in urban warfare, both in pace and 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 caution. We'll we'll have to yes, note, as, as of course you know, the international international court of justice had a had a different conclusion. But I, I want to ask you this: in the forty five seconds we have well, left. So, Go ahead, sir, Mr. Falk. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure he. I'm, actually, I'm not sure they reached that conclusion. To the contrary, they said that uh, they were they were asked to uh, by uh, South Africa, which was asked was acting as a as a Hamas proxy. They were asked to force us to, for a ceasefire. Um, that that actually didn't. They did not ask us to do that because we know we need to win this war, uh, and uh, that's exactly what we're doing. When now, when you compare the Gaza, when you compare the war in Gaza to other well, similar. Uh, conflicts. Many look at the... Uh, we, we, uh, I'm the afraid we're out of time, so. Mr. Falk. Uh, okay. Let me give you a last sentence. Well, my last sentence is that this is a war between civilization and these Hamas uh, barbaric savages. Uh, we are going to win. We are going to win this war, and our victory will be America's victory as well. And I thank you a lot, Scott, for the opportunity. Ophira Falk, foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu, thanks so much for being with us. New York judge says that former President Trump needs to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for inflating his net worth by billions of dollars to secure better business insurance and banking deals. The lawsuit by State Attorney General James says that Trump and his organization's fraud took place from 2011 to 2021. Here's the Attorney General after the judge's decision. We are holding Donald Trump accountable. We are holding him accountable for lying cheating, and a lack of contrition, and for flouting the rules that all of us must play by. NPR Politics reporter Jimena Bustillo has been following the case and joins us. Jimena, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks.
Break down the bill for us here. What did the judge ultimately decide? New York Judge Arthur Nguyen ordered former President Donald Trump and executives at the Trump Organization to pay over $364 million, handing a win to New York Attorney General Letitia James, who sued Trump and his associates after a three-year investigation. The breakdown here shows that Trump and his companies owed the bulk of that money, $355 million to be exact. Trump's oldest two sons, Eric and Donald Jr., are each liable for $4 million each, and Alex Alan Weisselberg, who is a former Trump Organization executive, is liable for $1 million. The one thing that is important to note is that this doesn't count interest, which the Attorney General's office estimates brings the total to more than $450 million and counting. And it's not just money, right? Right. So the judge also put a temporary limit on Trump and his co-defendants ability to do business in the Empire State. Trump is prohibited from serving as an officer or director of any New York business or applying for loans for three years. His sons are limited from similar leadership roles for two years. Weisselberg and a former controller of the Trump Organization, who is also a defendant, are permanently barred from serving in the financial control of any New York corporation or similar business entity in New York State again permanently the trump organization will have to have a new independent director of compliance to establish new protocols and make sure that it's meeting financial obligations trump as expected did not approve of the decision he continued to falsely call it election interference uh, referring to the 2024 election and his lawyers have vowed to appeal uh this was a busy week for legal challenges overall where does friday's decision fit in at that bigger picture for mr trump this one stands out in that it was a civil trial related to his businesses. It wasn't criminal and it doesn't relate to an election like the th like there are three others that do. But the ruling does come at a crucial time for Trump, who is the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination for this 2024 contest. This week, we also got a date for what is likely to be Trump's first criminal trial, also in New York, and it relates to hush money payments issued during the 2016 election. That trial is set to start here next month. Trump is facing a, com a combined tw uh, 91 state and federal charges, including two related to his effort to stay in office after he lost the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden. But the charges haven't done much to dent Trump's popularity really along uh, among his base. Instead, the charges appear to have bolstered his credentials and likely setting up a rematch with Biden. And Pierre Jimenez Bustillo, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Stay with us. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about Indiana University canceling a planned exhibit of the artwork of Palestinian-American artist Samia Halaby. But the new organizer set up a one-day exhibit, and that has sold out. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
It's 30 degrees in Boston, highs in the mid-30s today, a chance of some snow, little or no accumulation expected. Low around 20 tonight, tomorrow partly sunny, highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris is standing by Ukraine. Speaking today at the annual Munich Security Conference, she said the Biden administration is ready to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. The White House-backed request for another $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine remains stalled in Congress. Authorities are investigating last night's explosion that leveled a home in suburban Washington, D.C. The blast in Sterling, Virginia killed a firefighter. Ten other firefighters and two civilians were injured. Officials say they were investigating a potential gas leak. And the focus of the NBA is on Indianapolis. The best players from the Eastern and Western conferences will cap the league's all-star weekend when they square off against each other tomorrow evening. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person, with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. February 24th will mark two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. News outlets from around the world, including NPR, broadcast regular reports on the battlefield. But what has the war meant for daily life in Ukraine? Yaroslav Torfimov is chief foreign affairs correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. He's author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish. Katerina Yakovlenko is editor of the Ukrainian Public Broadcasting Arts Reporting Site, and she has an exhibition of Ukrainian art that's now on display in Lviv. I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know any better way to put it than to ask you, what's life like in Ukraine now? How has it changed since the war began? Yaroslav? Well, I think everything has changed. I don't think there is a single person in Ukraine whose life has been affected either because they had to flee their city or their country. Millions have had to flee because someone in their family was killed or injured or lost their home or is fighting on the front lines. I think there is a generational trauma that has been inflicted on the Ukrainian people that is really hard to understand for people who don't live that reality day by day. Yeah, I agree that for many years people um, have been changed a lot, but I also would add that it's almost 10 years of annexation of Crimea and occupation of parts of Donetsk and Luhansk regions. So many people already live through such huge and violent experience. Uh, They lost their homes, they lost their kids and uh, friends. And now, of course, the situation become much more complicated because more cities are erased and there is no quiet and normal life in any place in Ukraine now. Yaroslav, you have covered wars all over the world. You've been to the front lines a lot, too. What's it like for soldiers? How do they feel? 
throughout the war, uh, in the beginning and now, one thing hasn't changed. The war is existential for Ukraine, and I think Ukrainian soldiers do realize, and Ukrainian civilians do realize, that what Russia wants is to wipe out Ukraine as a state, as a culture, as a nation, as a language, as a people. And so there is no option but to keep fighting, and there is no prospect of Russia settling for something short of wiping out Ukraine in the long term, unless Russia is defeated militarily. So uh, danger is everywhere. This is Europe's bloodiest war since World War II. It's on a completely different scale from all the country's urgency campaigns that we have witnessed in the past uh, two decades. Katerina, how are people finding the energy and spirit and just the time to create art when they have to worry about just surviving day to day? Yeah, it's a good question, but I also perhaps need to emphasize that this war is also about culture and against culture. When you see how many institutions are targeted by the weapons and how Russia destroys museums, how they stole in our art pieces from the museums and how do they change the narrative about Ukrainian history and the history of arts. So you want to resist this. And of course, one of the way of resisting is that to create something material, something that will stay for a long time and something that you can give your, I don't know, children, right? And someone who will come after you. And this is gives a huge desire to do such kind of work. May I ask, have um, either of you, each of you, lost friends, loved ones, family? I mean, I haven't, I haven't lost family, thankfully, but uh, friends, yes, for sure. I guess this is like really a hard question, what is lost about. My parents still live in uh, occupied territory. I have friends who are on the front line right now. And I lost my home because it was destroyed in the March 2022. So, yes. As I don't have to tell you, I'm sure there's a debate going on in the U.S. Congress about giving funding for Ukraine to defend itself. How is that uh, debate in the U.S. Congress being viewed there, Yaroslav? Well, I think there is a sense of puzzlement because it's hard to understand why all of a sudden, because of domestic political reasons, the plug has been pulled. And I think there's a broader point there, though. Early in the war, the U.S. also pulled the plug. The U.S. walked away from Ukraine, closed the embassy, didn't expect Ukraine to survive, and basically provide a little bit of weapons for an insurgency campaign. If Russia had won in Ukraine at the time, it would have been a tragedy for Ukraine, but would not have broken the Western alliance, would not have been an existential defeat for the West. But now... Two years into this, after hundreds of billions of dollars, commitments to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. If the U.S. does actually walk away now, this will be seen as a Russian victory against what Putin calls the collective West, against Western democracies. And it will be seen this way all over the world. And it will have an impact not just in Europe, not just in Ukraine, but in all the other areas that opponents of aid to Ukraine claim they care about, East Asia, Middle East, you name it. I'm going to ask a question I know that there's really no answer to, but I want to hear your thinking. How long can this go on? How long can Ukraine 
hold out, it begins to get hard, and there's a human cost. Katerina? Of course, we all understand the price of this war, and we already paid a lot. Maybe because of this, we don't want to stop fighting, because this is not only about our existence, uh, everyone who is still alive, but this is also a question on behalf of all these people who already died for this independence and freedom. I don't know how long it would be, but I think we all have the same idea that we should stand until the end. It's certainly going to last a long time. But let's not forget also that the Russian capabilities are not limitless. And the war of attrition is also affecting Russia. And at some point in a year or two, it will run out of tanks and armored personnel carriers because they're being destroyed at a much higher rate as Russia can produce them. And here again, uh, the issue of Western resolve matters. If Western resolve ends and Ukraine collapses before Russia reaches its own tipping point, then Russia wins. But it doesn't have to be. Yaroslav Trofimov is a chief foreign correspondent of the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish. And Katerina Yakovlenko is editor of the Ukrainian public broadcasting arts reporting site. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. How did Alexei Navalny die at just 47 years of age? Well, he was in a prison camp and he was an outspoken critic of President Vladimir Putin. The Russian government denies killing him, but as you can hear this afternoon on All Things Considered, he's far from the only critic to wind up dead in and outside Putin's Russia. One, that he is desperate to keep silent anyone who is going to challenge his power or unveil the corruption and the brutality that has characterized his regime. Second is just the brutality. You know, he has absolutely no limits to the extent that he will go to kill people. And I do believe he thinks that he will be unaccountable. What happens when you stand up to Putin later today? You can listen by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. And now it's time for sports. Caitlin Clark, record breaker, history maker, Sabrina versus Steph for the three-point crown and tragedy at a Super Bowl celebration. Christine Brennan of USA Today joins us. Christine, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Caitlin Clark. Wow. Iowa Hawkeyes. She broke the NCAA women's basketball scoring record this week. 49 points against Michigan. Uh, Biggest name in sports right now? I think so. Greatest show in sports, certainly. The joy with which she plays, Scott, the confidence, the certainty of those logo threes. And when we say logo threes, that means she's shooting from where the logo is uh, at center court. So it's well, well beyond the three-point line. And what she did, as I was watching, and probably you and many other thousands, uh, probably well over a million, watching her 
break that record of Kelsey Plum. She, she, bang, 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 three shots. It was two minutes and 12 or 13 seconds, eight points, including two threes. And that, that magnificent three, as I said, from the logo at yeah. Iowa, where she is beloved, her home state, her college, uh, everything about her. But it's not just in Iowa, Scott, as you know. It, she is a, a per, the personification of a new Latter-day Harlem Globetrotters, barnstorming the country, yeah. selling out arenas. I was one of those people with family who bought tickets at University of Maryland a couple weeks ago. No press pass for me. I wanted to see Aww. it in person as a fan sees it. She is just a singular athlete with those threes where we can watch every move she makes and obviously just uh, the greatest female athlete in terms of basketball, uh, point total and scoring. And she's about to break the overall record, just 99 points to Pete Maravich means she, wow. she would be the greatest male or female in Division One. And uh, there's Lynette Woodard, who played before the NCAA. Caitlin Clark will pass her with 81 more points. So a couple more records yet to go for her. Yeah. A uh, few days until March Madness. Do you think this year there's going to be more interest in the women's tournament than the men's? I do. I really do. Obviously, Caitlin Clark. But it's not just Caitlin Clark. And, of course, there's no guarantee I was going to make the Final Four again. They were in the championship game last year against LSU. That was riveting and just fascinating controversy and everything. It had it all. But but even without Caitlin Clark in Iowa, you've got South Carolina, Don Staley, the great coach. This is a, a number one ranked team. Uh, you've got, of course, the stories of UConn. You've got teams in the West now, USC with Juju Watkins, a, a great young star. These are names we know. What happens in men's basketball now, unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, depending on if you're old school or new school, is that uh, a lot of them are one and done. And that means they play for a year and then they go on to play professionally in you know, NBA draft, whatever. That's great. But what it does, it, it lessens the connection between the fans and the, the alums. Uh, and those players at that school. And so we just don't know the names as much. So I do think this is the year where everyone should be doing a women's bracket as well as a men's, and that the men's may take, uh, you know, a back seat to the women's tournament. These are sentences, by the way, Scott, I never would have thought oh. I would have uttered. That's how significant this is. And let's just note quickly, Sabrina Ionescu uh, of the New York Liberty Stands a legitimate chance to defeat Steph Curry of Golden State tonight uh, in in the three point shootout, don't they? Doesn't right. she? She does, and great respect there. You know, Billie Jean and Bobby Riggs years ago, a lot of animosity. Not here. These two have great respect, and Steph Curry who has taken his daughters to watch Sabrina play, um, he, he thinks she might beat her, uh, beat him. And that's possible. The three-point line will be the NBA three-point line, which is about three feet longer than the women's. Yeah. And Sabrina feels very comfortable shooting from there. And this is going to be great fun to watch, the battle of the sexes, so to speak. Of course, terrible tragedy at the Super Bowl victory parade in Kansas City. There are two juveniles in custody now. One person was killed, uh, 22, most of them children, injured. Is this America now? I'm afraid it is. I mean, think about it, Scott, as, you know, as we all have over the last few days. Super Bowl parade and, uh, and of course, 
uh, mass shooting. <laughs> and you just can't believe it. But this is where we are, and it is believable. What we've seen as the Kansas City Chiefs rise up, Patrick Mahomes and his wife were at the hospital seeing some of the kids. Travis Kelsey do has donated money. Taylor Swift has donated money to the poor woman, um, the, the fund to uh, for her uh, funeral and expenses, the woman who was killed. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of that as this community bonds together. Christine Brennan, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. After a month of protests, the life and work of an accomplished Palestinian artist will be featured in a theater in Bloomington, Indiana. The show is called Samia Halabi, Uncancelled. The one-day event comes after a battle over academic freedom, censorship, and politics. Here's Aubrey Wright of member station WFIU. The artist Samia Halabi is in her late 80s now. Halabi's family fled Palestine in 1948 and settled in the Midwest. She completed a master's in fine arts at Indiana University in the 60s and later served as a faculty member. She's one of the university's most successful artists and she's recognized as a pioneer of abstract art. I am trying my best to reduce what I have been trying to do all throughout my career, remove perspective, remove shading, remove shape, and just arrive at a space of light and depth. That's Halaby in a featured artist talk at IU's Eskenazi Museum of Art in 2021. For three years, museum curators and Halaby's team worked on a homecoming exhibit that was supposed to open this February, but the white walls of the museum are bare and the exhibit room is dark and empty. The university abruptly canceled the exhibit late last year. In the two-sentence email, the museum director said there were security concerns. It was a decision that upset the artist and her grandniece and collaborator, Madison Gordon. Gordon says they tried to learn more for weeks. We asked to have a conversation. We asked for them to elaborate more in writing what this was about. We heard nothing. And there was no further explanation. The university declined multiple requests for interviews, but in another email, a university spokesperson said campus officials and academic leaders made the decision. A month later, IU Provost Rahul Srivastav did speak publicly about the controversy. He says the exhibit would have been a lightning rod for protests on campus, and IU's leaders were being cautious. Anytime where you feel the risks are higher than the reward, we have to rethink that situation. But it was that decision which sparked protests on campus, many of them. Many protesters say Halaby's abstract art is not political. Faculty, students, and university staff like Reed Hepburn say IU administration is threatening academic freedom and censoring Palestinian voices. It's just so very clear that this is, you know, identity-based discrimination, which is completely against the values that IU stands for. American Studies Chair Alex Lichtenstein also protested because he says he's worried about this cancellation. I've learned that I have been very, very naive about the state of academic freedom on this campus. And math professor Elizabeth Houseworth says with all the attention and controversy over the Israel-Hamas war, the university is silencing a Palestinian voice when it's needed most. 
She was deeply troubled by the university's vague explanation. It seemed like we were canceling one side of the issue, and I felt it was wrong. So Houseworth used her own money, and with support from private donors in Hallaby's studio, she organized Samuel Hallaby Uncancelled. It's a one-day exhibit that features artwork, videos, and documentaries about Hallaby's life and career. This is the event for people who want to understand what we are missing. A lot of people apparently do want to know what this is. Samuel Hallaby Uncancelled is sold out. And later this summer, the artist's IU exhibit will be shown at Michigan State University, where she earned her bachelor's degree. Hallaby says that exhibit was supposed to show her love for the Midwest. For NPR News, I'm Aubrey Wright in Bloomington, Indiana. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The state's highest court has sided with criminal justice advocates over a court records dispute. In their suit, the advocates said the state was violating a law allowing people with juvenile offenses to seal their records after three years. The suit was filed on behalf of a man who was indicted on extortion charges when he was 16 years old. He requested to seal his records in 2021, but initially was denied. A new day shelter for migrant families is opening in Chelsea. It will serve families staying at an overflow shelter in Cambridge. The immigrant social services organization La Collaborativa is opening the site at its headquarters in coordination with the nonprofit United Way. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Temperatures reaching the mid-30s today. A chance of some snow, little or no accumulation expected. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. And Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in health care built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting health care at bmc.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The movie Killers of the Flower Moon, set in 1920s Oklahoma, shows the systematic murder of Osage people for their oil wealth. If Lily Gladstone wins an Oscar for her portrayal of the real-life Molly Burkhart, she will be the first Native American actor 
to be so honored in the acting category. Lily Gladstone spoke about that and what might be next for her with Allison Herrera of APM Reports. I caught up with Lily Gladstone right before she was about to appear on a panel with director Martin Scorsese and Osage Nation Principal Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear. I introduced myself in Salinan, my native language. And Gladstone did the same in Blackfeet. My name is Lily Gladstone, Eagle Woman, and I'm from the Blackfoot Nation. It's not lost on Gladstone that she's portraying an indigenous woman on the big screen after decades of misrepresentation by Hollywood. She sees this movie, the awards, and press around it as a chance to set the record straight and prove that this wasn't done without buy-in from the Osage people. People learn history by watching movies. You know, our sense of history and culture is largely shaped by what we see on screen. So it just has to be constructed by both parties if it's a collaboration like this. And really, there was so much in the film that, you know, it's credited to Marty and Eric, rightfully so, you know, the writers of, of what we have. But there's so much in the story that also just belongs to Osage. That collaboration Gladstone is talking about between Martin Scorsese, screenwriter Eric Roth, and the citizens of the Osage Nation led to presenting Molly's character more front and center instead of it being about the FBI and changing an early scene in the movie. You know, you got you got nice color scheme. What, what color would you say that is? my color. Originally, this scene in a rainstorm ended with both characters drinking each other under the table. Gladstone said that wasn't who Molly was. No, don't close it. We need to be quiet for a while. There's a heavy storm. Why do we sit still during that? Wilson Pipestem was one of the Osages Gladstone met with for her research. Pipestem, who's from the Gray Horse District where Molly Burkhart and her family were from, had written a letter to Scorsese inviting him to a Gray Horse dinner to meet Osages and hear their concerns about the film. He helped Gladstone understand how Osage women would have acted at the time, repeating stories and advice his grandmother, Rose, had told him. She said, well, you know, Wakanta, our creator, is powerful and the elements belong to God. If we act like there's no power in them, we just keep doing what we would do any day. Something might happen to us. So we need to just sit quiet and show respect and pray, be prayerful and still. Gladstone formed other relationships with Osages and drew upon their stories, women who would have been Molly's contemporaries in the 1920s. One of them was Molly's real-life granddaughter, Margie Burkhart. A lot of my pacing, a lot of my gestural work, uh, the dry sort of humor and like the awareness of him and what's going on, all of that came from my first interactions with Margie. He told me you was... He was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. Oh my gosh, she nailed it. Dana Daylight noticed how Gladstone embodied Osage women in the movie. Daylight had a small part in the film, and she cooked all the food on screen. She says a scene where Molly breaks down wailing after her sister Rita has been killed in a horrific house explosion was really authentic. <laughs> Wailing is an important cultural expression of grief, Osage women practice. And Daylight said Gladstone just got it. You felt it. 
I felt it because I've been there. I've done that. It was very real and it really shook a lot of us. Daylight is rooting for Gladstone to win an Oscar. She says it would feel right to reward such an accurate representation. She's showing the world we're still here, we're alive, we're not living in a teepee by a stream. So, I mean, it's by winning an Oscar, she's doing a lot for everybody. She, it's an inspiration. For Gladstone, being a historic first is exciting, but it's something she says comes with some responsibility. She and others like Reservation Dogs creator Sterling Harjo have kicked the door open, but now... That also kind of means that now we just have to stand here and hold it open. Like, we, we can't just run through it because if you do that, door closes behind you. Gladstone acknowledges that Native people need to be able to tell their own stories. That criticism, along with the praise the film is getting, is a line Gladstone's been walking. Ultimately, she says, the success of the film comes down to trust between Scorsese and the Osage people. And this nomination, she says, it doesn't just belong to her. I'm at this point in history because of this story, this filmmaker, the right people taking a gamble on changing the story away from, you know, an FBI story to, you know, this, this relationship piece brought Molly front and center of it. Osage citizens I've spoken to say they're so proud of Gladstone and the film. The Osage Congress even adopted a resolution endorsing her performance, as well as Osage singer Scott George, whose song for the film is also nominated. In their eyes, Gladstone and the film have already won. For NPR News in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'm Allison Herrera. Isn't it obvious Emma Morley and Dexter Mayhew just aren't right for each other? Been at university for four years and never spoken until the night they graduate. July 15, 1988. He's London. She's Leeds. Emma is studious, ambitious, political, and working class, trying to find a life in the theater. Dex is privileged, handsome, and just wants to party and travel. They spend graduation night together, not how you may think, and never quite really say goodbye. One Day is a new Netflix series starring Ambika Maud as M. She won awards for her performance in the series. This is going to hurt. She joins us now from London. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. How do you play characters who are shown over one-year intervals? Because it, it's not as if you can, you know, just throw on a gray wig and, and age mm. 40 years. You know, actually, from your 20s to your 30s, physically, you don't age that much. So, of course, we had help of costume and hair and makeup, and there were subtle changes over the years. But I think, especially in terms of Emma and Dexter, it was about just charting their character changes mm -hmm. and how much their life experiences affect them. I think in the case of Emma especially, like, she grows in confidence so much over the course of the show, over the course of the 20 years. So there's a maturing in that aspect. It's obviously, you know, not, not just physical. So that was, I think, much more helpful than, than trying to think about how they might walk or hold themselves or speak. Uh, one day, uh, the novel was a huge bestseller by David Nichols and, mm. and later a movie with Anne Hathaway as Emma. Is it intimidating to play characters that millions of people think they already know? <laughs> yeah, a uh, big time. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
you know, it's sort of part of the reason why I turned down the audition when I first got it, because I just didn't think that I could do it. And it felt so massive. The whole project felt so massive and insurmountable when we started. And yeah, lots of people have preconceptions and expectations for Emma and Dexter. I would say they're probably more so for Emma than there are for Dexter, because Emma is the grounding character of the story. She is the one that everyone relates to. She is the one who people, whose eyes people see the story through. You know, David always says that when people come up to him and tell him how much they love his book, they always say that, I am Emma. No one ever says to him, I am Dexter. So I think, you know, there's something very precious and beloved about Emma Morley. So being chosen to play her felt like a massive, massive undertaking. Did I hear you say you turned on the audition when it was first offered? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I turned down over like the course of several, several weeks. And um, our casting director, Rachel Sheridan, kept chasing my agent and I kept being like, no, no, absolutely not. And one night I just woke up in bed and realized I'd made a terrible mistake. Yeah, I just, I, like I said, I just didn't think I could do it. I'd never seen a woman who looked like me play a romantic lead before in a story as grounded as this. It didn't feel possible at the time of auditioning. I mean, how wrong I was, but it took a lot of convincing for me to really see myself in the part, way, way, way into filming. It was a, mm. a real process. And did, may I ask, did you read the novel or did you think that just might get in the way? No, I read the novel. I read the novel when it came out. So I was like 13 or 14 mm. um, when I first read it and I was so very young. It's always been one of my favorite books. I feel like it's always just sort of been in and out of my life filming it I was sort of so it was just so lovely to be able to interact with this text so much for over the course of you know eight months and see it come to life our amazing you know writers brought it to life so vividly mm. um it kind of feels sad now that it's done and it's out there in the world and I don't get to interact with it in the same way well speaking of sadness um if the series is true to the novel there's loss ahead let me just put it that mm. way mm-hmm hard for actors to take too? Yeah, it is hard. It's something that I have you know, a bit of experience with before and um, this is going to hurt my character passed away and it's not the playing of it that's difficult as much as it is the seeing the response to it. Um, you yeah. know, if you've done, if you've played a storyline like that right, if, you, if the storytelling is done um, in a sensitive and I think impactful way and people respond to it that's the bit where you're really hit by the force of it um we don't want to give anything away but um the show's been out for a week now and the way that people have reacted to the tale of loss is it's been really remarkable but it's overwhelming and i still don't feel yeah i feel like i'm very much in the eye of the storm still is there a phrase from emma that you've taken into your personal life or find yourself quoting to people? Oh my gosh. Um, I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of press for this show and people talk about it being a romance and a love story, which it is of course, but I, I'm having worked so intimately with the source material now. I am really hesitant to call it that because I think it's actually so much more than just that. It's so much more than just about Emma and Dexter's relationship with each other. It's about growing up and how difficult that can be and how disappointing it can be and how, how like the contrast between our wide-eyed ambition and optimism when we're young often contrasts with 
other, you know, people, our, our aged selves and looking back and seeing how things panned out. And um, there's a line in the novel as well as a series that where Emma says, well, Emma, Dexter's written it in his, oh, I, I don't want to give away spoilers, but Emma says, um, we grew up together and referring to her and Dex and, you know, they did in many ways. And I think that's essentially what the story is about. They met when they were like 22, 23 and they grew up together in their 20s and their 30s. And um, I think that's, you know, really stuck with me filming the series is that it is just a story about two, most of the time, two friends just growing up together and becoming adults and living out in the real world. Amber Kamad is Emma in the Netflix series One Day. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. God rested on the seventh day, and on the eighth, he lent his voice to Bob Edwards. Good morning, I'm Bob Edwards. The Senate today is unsealing 4,000 pages of closed-door transcripts from the Joseph McCarthy hearings in the early to mid-50s. That voice, which personified Morning Edition for almost 25 years and had hosted All Things Considered alongside Susan Stamberg before that, was resonant but not pompous. Bob's voice rolled like a great river at just the right pace intoning about war, peace, politics, blooming camellias, and baseball scores. At a time when NPR was a fledgling institution, Bob Edwards made it sound big league. I heard the voice in person for the first time years ago when a door at WBEZ, our Chicago station, was thumped open by a scuffed boot, worn by a man in blue jeans and a trucker's jacket. What time do the bars close in this burg? You're not Bob Edwards, I said. He was in town for election coverage, and we became friends. He was sharp, funny, and had a laugh like a great deep bell. Bob was the best cold reader in the business. You could throw a Budapest phone book at him, and he'd read it out with unwavering authority and enunciation that was proper without being stuffy. A phrase Bob once wrote of Edward R. Murrow applied to Bob, too. He engaged the high school dropout while not boring the intellectual. He'd often begin pre-recorded interviews by saying, you start. Producers could find this baffling, but Bob told me his opening gave the person he interviewed a chance to begin with what they considered most vital and compelling about a story. Bob imagined his audience as people, not data points. He envisioned listeners hearing him as they blinked open their eyes in the morning, gulped coffee, and drove to work and school, twisting through a dial for voices to ride along. Bob had a public parting with NPR in 2004. I know he was angry and hurt, but Bob Edwards was also a stone-cold pro who understood. This is the news business. I made it a point to sit in the studio with Bob for his last morning edition. Between intros and interviews, he told funny stories and hugged people dropping off scripts. You know, Scooter, Bob told me that day, doesn't take much in this business to go from being a beloved national figure to a person of concern. In a craft where what we do can seem just to float in and out of our ears, Bob Edwards' voice stays in millions of minds and hearts. B.J. Lederman wrote the theme music for Bob Edwards. He does ours, too. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks, Colonel. I'm Scott Simon.
Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. It's 30 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. I'm Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Adam Burke reminded us of the things that bring us together. One thing that we as a society can all agree upon is that we all hate mimes. We'll be speaking up nice and loud as we discuss the big stories of the week and talk to the legendary rock band Sleater Kenny on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.